Welcome to the Climate Chronicles podcast by SkySpecs, the show where we explore the latest wind and renewable energy trends, industry expertise, and best practices that can help us deliver the most efficient energy generation in the world. Let's jump into the latest episode. Welcome once again to SkySpecs Climate Chronicles podcast, where we explore some of today's biggest issues facing the renewable energy industry. I'm Sarah Light, Head of Marketing here at SkySpecs. My co-host is our CRO, Josh Borrell, and our guest for today is Dr. Laura Sherman, who is the president of Michigan Energy Innovation Business Council, or Michigan EIBC, and the Institute for Energy Innovation, or E, or IEI, right, yeah. All right, welcome, Laura. Thanks, so, good to be here. Great to have you. So uh, one of the things that we do just to make it a little bit easier to jump into the, the tough crust questions of the podcast is just to start off with some softball. And so first, what um, is your favorite vacation spot? Oh, that's <laughs> maybe it's not a softball. <laughs> no, that's easy. That's easy. Um, the Outer Banks in North Carolina. We go there. I've gone there every year since I was like a baby. So I love it there. Awesome. That's awesome. Do you do you go like several times a year or? Um, yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. We've been in all different seasons. I, I, we always go in the summer. I love it awesome. in the summer and just sit on the beach and um, ride the waves, but uh, it's fun. It's, it's fun in the winter too. And kind of a nice change from the Midwest when it gets really cold, when it used to get really cold, sort of yeah. doesn't get really cold anymore. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Great. Josh, do you have a vacation, favorite vacation spot? I feel like I haven't asked you that yet. Oh gosh. Um, I sort of came prepared as the host. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, I'm trying to think. I mean, we love, we love going to, to Traverse City and then actually, yeah, outside of Traverse City, um, Cabo in, in Mexico and Sarah knows this, but I'm getting married in three weeks in Cabo. Oh my gosh. Congratulations. That's Thank exciting. Yeah. So yeah, we love going down there and yeah, definitely our favorite spot. Nice. Awesome. Awesome. Actually, Sarah, well, you gonna, know, what is yours? <laughs> what is mine? <laughs> um, I was like in Michigan, obviously like I love Traverse City and up North. It's great, but like one of the great things about the new house that we bought is we just got it on a lake. And now that a lot of our renovations are done, this is starting to become my favorite spot because we're getting to have everybody here and like, you know, family joins us for 4th of July, which is a lot, but you know, now, now we're starting to become a destination. It's kind of fun. Nice. That's awesome. <laughs> nice. Um, Laura, do you have any pets? Yes. Uh, two black labs. Oh, what are their names? Over there, Um, Mikey and Chelsea. They were both uh, career changed from the leader dog for the blind program in Rochester. Um, They both have tiny health issues. Chelsea has elbow dysplasia and Mikey has tiny cataracts. So they couldn't Mm -hmm. lead blind people. They are um, high energy. You sign up for what energy level you want. They are insane. So <laughs> they're the high energy variety. Oh, that's awesome. 
I've got one of okay. those, one of the insane yeah. ones. <laughs> you do? Yeah. A lab too? No, a golden retriever. To, uh, oh, nice. He just turned two, so he is a wild man. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Sometimes they calm down and sometimes they don't. So. Yeah. Still hoping. <laughs> I have a, a former wild dog that is now 11 and is finally starting to calm down and only gets really excited when it's food time. And then she starts jumping around again. And I'm like, okay, she's still got a little bit of puppy in her, but you know, <laughs> mostly for treats, which I get. Yep. Right. <laughs> so now that we've got some of the getting to know you stuff out of the way, how about we uh, start with uh, you telling us a little bit about you, about your journey to your current role, about your current role, all of that kind of fun stuff. Yeah, sure. So, um, Let's see. So I, I actually have a PhD from University of Michigan in geology, earth and environmental science. Um, I studied mercury pollution, tracing, figuring out ways to trace the pollution from the sources to lakes and fish and um, that humans come in contact with and sort of was interested in energy issues and sort of those were the sources I was looking at. I was doing my research around power plants um, and I taught a class on energy, but, um, and I sort of wanted to have more of an impact on current, the current world and on, on policy, but I had no idea how to do that. Um, so after I did a short postdoc and after that, um, got a fellowship through the American Academy for the Advancement of Science, which they they place people every year in agencies in DC. So like EPA, NSF, Department of Energy. Um, and they also have 30 or so fellows who go to Congress every year. Um, and I was lucky enough to get one of those congressional fellowships um, and ended, and then you do this like terrible match process where they, you you interview with a lot of offices and figure out where you want to go, so, sort of what you want to work on, um, with no knowledge of anything. So it's you know, um, but I ended up working for Senator Bennett from Colorado, um, and I wanted to work sort of in a, on a purplish state because I knew I wanted to come back to the Midwest and I wanted to have sort of those like bipartisan negotiation skills. I wanted to work for um, somebody who had all the energy generation sources. So like not a state that could just think about it and use energy, a state that was actually producing it. So Colorado has, you know, wind and solar and they have wind product, like wind turbine production, Investus, and then, you know, all of the coal, oil, natural gas, um, all the fossil fuels as well uh, in just sort of really interesting dynamics around all of those. Um, so I was a fellow for about six months before the person I was working under left and went to work for the ag committee. So all of a sudden I sort of was in the role of being the policy advisor on um, energy issues, which, and ag issues uh, and environmental issues. They sort of had one person covering two or three people's jobs. Um, and it kind of hung around long enough to get hired. So I stayed, I ended up doing that role for two more years um, after that. And then at, at the end of 2016, um, was, I was planning on doing this anyway, but it turned out to be a really good time to leave DC. Um, and 
found a position back in Michigan with Five Lakes Energy, which is a energy policy consulting company, um, and started to kind of get to work with the businesses and companies doing renewables and advanced energy. Um, because at that time, Five Lakes was helping run the Michigan EIBC and sort of started helping, especially with the regulatory work that we were doing at the Michigan Public Service Commission. Uh, and then eventually moved over full time to EIBC because I was so interested in sort of the role of companies and uh, all the, I don't know, I just get so excited about all the interesting, exciting things that you guys are doing. Um, so I got to be sort of one of the um, vice presidents of policy. And then when Liesl Clark left to run Eagle, um, managed to step into the role of president in, that was in spring of 2019. Um, I guess I've been in this role now for almost, almost three years, which is crazy. Um, no, almost four years, right? I can do math. <laughs> Almost four years. That's yeah. insane. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So it just Crazy. feels like feels like it hasn't been that long. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's the. I'm sure I could answer. I'm sure I could go down any of those rabbit holes longer, but that's the short description. Yeah, I mean those COVID years just kind of all blend together too. So I think that was part of it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, it's hard to know how long that time actually was. Very hard to know. Yes. Yeah. Turns out doing nothing makes you feel like it was no time at all. I know. Yeah. You're like, I was pretty much in that same chair for two years, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a very strange thought experiment for all of us. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so can you tell us a little bit more about EIBC and, and what you guys do as an organization? Yeah. So um, we are a trade organization and you listed our two organizations, which is sometimes confusing. So EIBC is a trade organization. IEI is our uh, partner nonprofit. So I can go into that in a minute. But we have at EIBC, we have about 150 members now. And we sort of triangulate between all of them to figure out what policies are going to help them, mostly at the state level, um, tangentially a little bit of federal work, but mostly in Michigan at the state level. And then we uh, figure out ways to advocate for those policies at the legislature, at the Public Service Commission, and with sort of the agencies and the governor's office. Um, and then as parts of that, we um, bring our members together. So events, conferences, networking opportunities. Um, and we do a whole bunch of public education and education of policymakers a lot of which is through our, our nonprofit arm. So we are able using the nonprofit to do sort of research, report writing, um, public education, things that are like a tiny bit, tiny step ahead of where the industry is right now, but where we think the industry is going. So several years ago, we did a lot of research and um, events on electric vehicles, sort of before the car companies have really fully committed to going there, but we saw that was coming. Um, we've been doing recently a ton on energy storage because we know with all the renewables coming that we need more storage, And but we didn't have any companies doing it yet. Now we do. So it's sort of like IEI allows us to have this one step ahead window and then 
the trade organization allows us to be really grounded in what the industry is actually doing and, and actually thinks would help them do more. So what what's the criteria for the member organizations? Is it all kind of startups or is it all across the value chain? Like are the utilities and um, all the suppliers and manufacturers part of it too? Or um, the only rule, well, we have maybe some unspoken rules, but the only written rule is that we do not have members who are utilities who are rate regulated in Michigan. And I'm sort of precise about that because some of our members are utilities in other states or in other countries, but they're not in Michigan. Um, and so we we do that essentially because we, uh, our members have lots of different relationships with the utilities. Some of them, the utilities are our clients, some they're um, selling things to the utilities, some they're working with the utilities to get their projects through, some they're running pilots for the utilities or energy efficiency programs or whatever. So they have all these different relationships. Our role is to um, be able to push the utilities to go a little further or do a little more than they want to do otherwise, or that their business model would allow them to do otherwise. Um, and for many of our members, they probably wouldn't want to do that themselves because they have these relationships with the utilities. And if we had utilities as members, we wouldn't be able to participate in the regulatory process or, or push them in the way we're able to because they're not our members. Makes sense. Yeah. So what is a day in the life of the president <laughs> of EIBC look like? <laughs> I mean, it sounds like you guys are doing a lot. Um, I could show you my calendar, but I'm not sure it looks as bad <laughs> as yours. Um, it's, you know, I, uh, a lot of calls, a lot of Zoom calls um, now, used to be a lot of conference calls. Um, but, you know, we do, this week we had a board meeting, they're often in person. So we probably at least once a month, we'll have some kind of an event. Um, last week we had a, a legislator education event at the Capitol um, on the one day they were in session. So we, we had lunch uh, for the legislators and staff and had a panel of a bunch of members talking about um, advanced energy manufacturing and sort of like trying to educate the legislators. So, um, and also that day had a full team strategy meeting. So, you know, it's a mix of in-person and remote, but we're largely remote. Um, a lot of calls and then a lot of sort of trying to figure out how to get the detailed comments and testimony written that I need to do. Um, not, I have to hold time on the calendar to avoid the calls. So it's, um, there's a, somehow there's an exponential in, increase in sort of member communications when you go from like a hundred members to 150 members. And it, it, you can never tell when a new member is, is going to need more help or less help, but um, there's always more to talk about. And I, I mean, it's it's hard for me because it's the things I really love. It's the most fun is just sort of figuring out what all the members are doing and why something would help them or not help them depending on their business model. Um, like right now, I've spent the last couple of weeks a lot of time negotiating a settlement in a rate case, um, which has involved, you know, triangulating with the lawyers, the other party's lawyers, you know, being on big group calls, but then also behind the scenes, 
to our members who are participating and who are affected by this, trying to find out like, is this the exact wording that you want? Like, it, is this, is it this or is it this? Like, which one of these is going to help you more? Like, how do we, and then trying to get that back to the lawyers because, you know, they don't have those connections. So it's sort of a, a go-between role um, that can be really fun when you get great outcomes. So. So, so you, you mentioned uh, earlier uh, the work you guys were doing on with electric vehicles and, and battery storage. But can you speak to some of the other like big policy issues that Michigan EIBC is working on currently? Yeah, there's so many. Um, <laughs> I don't even know where to start. Uh, I mean, so we have members, um, like very broad membership. So as you mentioned, we have electric vehicles, but we have the companies building the vehicles. So General Motor, things like General Motors and Bollinger Motors. We have the companies building the chargers, like Rhombus, Flow. We have charging uh, and charge point, and then some companies building software for those, like Shell Recharge. Companies maintaining them, like Charger Help. So, like a whole, like EVs is a whole network, and then energy efficiency companies, sustainability companies, wind, solar, the sort of folks like you guys who are helping all of those companies to make sure they're operating efficiently, um, consultants, lawyers, you know, the whole cadre of people around the industry, energy storage, broadly advanced energy manufacturing, which like, you know, supply chain all up and down, small scale rooftop solar. So for each of those, we're essentially, we just developed our policy priorities and we try to have something for everyone that we're working on. Um, for each of these different groups. I think if you, like if you look uh, across the different venues at the, with the agencies and the governor's office, um, we've been really focused, especially this coming year on the budget and in trying to get some key things that will help our members, especially around weatherization, um, electric vehicle charging and some incentives for uh, renewables into the budget process. Um, we've also been really focused on making sure Michigan is actually implementing all these federal dollars that are coming effectively in a way that'll work for the industry. So um, right now that's looked mostly at energy efficiency, at electric vehicles and at grid, sort of grid modernization broadly, which could be anything, <laughs> could, be, could be any host of folks. Um, and then if you look at the legislature, we have we have bills that we've been working on for years that we're really interested in trying to push through in the next session, whether it be around rooftop solar, community solar, uh, commercial pace, um, pace financing, some electric vehicle pieces. And then there's a whole host of things that folks, you know, might be part of a broader energy package that folks are really excited about or a renewable portfolio standard, which is one of the reasons the wind industry really got going in Michigan to begin with. Um, you know, things, things that are in the My Healthy Climate Plan that we might want to implement um, that we might have a chance to. So <clears throat> a whole host of things. And then all of those issues translate. I think one of the one of the interesting things that we do is try and work these different branches against each other or with each other. So all of these things translate into the 
regulatory branch as well and with the Michigan Public Service Commission and trying to advance those same things through the regulatory process. It's, um, it's just, it's sort of smaller wins, I guess, but you can often get more done. Whereas at the legislature, you can get a huge win, but it just doesn't happen very often. So you're able to sort of make small changes to each utilities process at the Public Service Commission. Um, and then hopefully eventually you get a sea change at the legislature and you can do a whole host of new things. I don't know, that, that was maybe helpful towards what you were asking. Yeah, yeah. Very, very so a lot. <laughs> okay, it's yeah. a lot, it's a lot. There's only four of us, which is fun. Yeah. You, you, you did mention the um, Michigan Healthy Climate Plan. Um, can you maybe speak a little bit more about that and how that's important to Michigan EIBC and its and its members? Yeah, um, we were involved as probably a lot of folks were in our, a bunch of our members were in the creation of it. They they had uh, public work groups, I guess, in 2021 mainly, um, and a whole process to winnow down to, to ideas that were most supported by a lot of folks. Um, and then they came out with the final plan this past spring um, and they're now sort of turning towards how you implement it. There's, so th it's really dense, there's a lot in there. Um, I think some of the high level things that we've been focused on, I guess in these same areas, there's, a desire to increase energy efficiency, um, to be able to electrify more buildings. So allowing people to switch more from natural gas to electric appliances and heating. Um, there's a push towards having enough charging infrastructure for 2 million vehicles on the roads. I think by, let me get the date wrong. I think all of this is by 2030, um, a 50 or 60% renewable portfolio standard by 2030, setting a, and then coupled with that, we need enough storage to make sure the grid is stable. So uh, 2,500 megawatts of storage also by 2030, um, which is actually, as a side note, that, that target is something that we developed um, for Eagle, they created an energy storage roadmap and um, the modeling we did, which I can also talk about, but that showed that we need 2,500 megawatts of storage. Um, and so, you know, all these things combine to this broad vision that the state has set in the My Healthy Climate Plan, but there's, it's more of a set of goals rather than like clearly what we need to do to get there. And so I think the, what we've all been sort of thinking about is what pieces of this need to go through the legislature, what pieces could just be done by the governor or the agencies, and, and what pieces can we work on at the Public Service Commission, and then how do we get all of this done? Um, you know, what pieces need funding, what pieces could leverage federal funding, um, you know, what can we put in the state's budget? Uh, so it's sort of a, a huge overarching undertaking, but I think it's it's the vision to get to carbon neutrality in the state by 2050. And it's sort of, what do we need to do by 2030 to be on the right path towards that? So you talked a little bit about leveraging federal dollars. So I'm guessing that you guys have given thoughts into the impact of the IRA 
and on Michigan and and what you're what you're going to do with your members to kind of leverage that. What are what are your what are your thoughts on how this impacts Michigan? Yeah. Oh well. Um, I don't have sort of numbers at, at my fingertips, but I know that folks have done a bunch of studies on the you know job creation, economic development opportunities mm-hmm. from both the. I guess we're now calling it the bipartisan infrastructure law. I don't know. Yeah, I keep calling yeah. it the invest, infrastructure <laughs> investment and jobs act. I don't know what we're supposed to call yeah. it, but um, the bipartisan infrastructure law and the inflation reduction act um, sort of combined. It's, it's this huge once in a generation influx of federal money and opportunities. And so uh, I think it's going to be huge for job creation. It's going to be incredible for the industry and you know, I think honestly, what folks are trying to figure out right now is just how to specifically on the IRA, how to comply to be able to maximize the tax credits or the um, tax benefits that they could occur incur. And um, what kinds of things could they do now that they couldn't do before? So there's, you know, new entities are able to, if they can't monetize the tax, if they can't use the tax credits, they can get them directly as cash which is a totally new, you know, direct pay, totally new. And I think it's going to be huge for um, the industry. I know that the that folks have been pushing for it for a long time. It wasn't quite a, everything everybody wanted, but it was, you know, sort of a subset of direct pay. Um, there's new, you can't get the full credit unless you pay prevailing wage, unless you have certain apprenticeship, meet certain apprenticeship requirements. And then, uh, there's all these new pieces where you can get bonuses if you're in certain communities, if you're uh, making certain commitments, if you're um, et cetera, et cetera, which they haven't fully worked out the details of how that works. If you're made in America, you know, if you're using components that are from the US. So I think it's going to enhance, you know, our supply chain. And I think Michigan stands to really benefit from that. And then I think it's just, I mean, I have, there's been, you know, there's always speculation about how much, how much more projects this is going to do, how much more steel in the ground. Um, I think it's going to be huge. I mean, I, I think that the number of folks who are currently interested in hydrogen, because there's just all these hydrogen tax credits and uh, grant funding opportunities, whereas two years ago, nobody was talking about hydrogen. So, I mean, policy matters right and so if the government's saying like go this way and there's money to be had and opportunities companies will go that way so um i think it will be really really important so so with like the even just like the aggressive growth targets and the stuff that we've kind of all put out as a as a nation and even as as a as a state are there certain challenges maybe with with renewable energy that that you think a lot about that are that maybe you feel are hard to overcome. And I mean, again, whether it's related to supply chain issues or labor shortages, um, obviously there's a lot of kind of tailwinds and exciting things happen, but also challenges at the same time. So are there any that kind of come top of mind that maybe you guys talk a lot about at EIBC? Yeah, you didn't you didn't mention the one that we talk about all the time right now. Oh. Uh, maybe you left it for me, but is, uh, local opposition to siting of these projects in yeah. local yeah. communities. Um, 
That is hugely problematic. It has been. It was the first thing I worked on uh, when I was at Five Lakes Energy. And it has not gotten better despite a lot of people working on it very hard for, you know, the last six years. Um, so it's, you know, I think there is a well-organized group of folks who are well-funded, possibly likely from the fossil fuel industry um, to scare people and to sort of foment local concerns, but it with, with lies, honestly, um, most of it. But, you know, there's also, there are lots of communities where people live there because they want to look at farm fields and they, they desire to have a rural um, sort of agricultural lifestyle. And maybe they don't want their neighbor who's a farmer having a bunch of solar panels or a wind turbine on their property. Um, and so there's, there's sort of, and there's also issues with, you know, whether you actually see the, the money that's being paid by these um, projects. And that sort of depends on the company and their model, as well as sort of what the local government decides to do with the tax funding and whether it's made uh, obvious to you what your, what your tax dollars are doing. Um, but, you know, I think these are things that a lot of folks are talking about right now. There's a lot in the news right now. Um, it's, it's been an issue. It's not a new issue. It's just sort of growing in um, conversation because a couple of several sort of high level projects just got denied at the local level over the last couple of years. And I think folks are really starting to take note that uh, unless we have some solutions to this issue, we may not meet these goals because literally there are not enough places that are allowing these projects to be built. So I think that, I mean, I think the supply chain, the issues you brought up are also yeah, yeah. really critical. Um, I think they're shorter term. This feels like a longer term one that we just have not cracked the nut. Yeah. So in, in Europe too, like some of those issues they've had and they've decided in, in the EU to like get rid of a lot of those local uh, authority and, and people's ability to deny um, uh, some of these projects to help with those issues. I'm guessing in the, the U.S. that's probably not on anyone's minds, or is that something that people are even thinking about doing in Michigan to help with some of these um, growth opportunities in Michigan? It depends on who you talk to. I think there's yeah. some <laughs> folks very interested in doing something like that. Um, I I mean, we're a very strong local control state and, and have been for a number of years. Um, we're trying to bring all of our members together to, to talk through these solutions. I don't think they're all in one place. There are lots of different ideas from experiences in other states that have worked well or not worked well, and, and possibly also overseas, like you mentioned, companies that have presence in other countries may also bring that knowledge in. Um, so we're trying to have those conversations. We're um, bringing all of our members together to to see if we could come to a consensus. Uh, you know, I personally think it's some mixture of more incentives and a little bit of guardrails or guidelines or limitations yeah. on the local decision making process. Um, but 
Yeah, I'm not sure. And I think it, it will require a solution that sort of the entire industry, the utilities, the uh, governor's office, you know, can all be supportive of and uh, remains to be seen if that exists yet. <laughs> but I'm really, I'm still hopeful. I'm hopeful that, yeah. that there can be sort of a, a melding of all the minds on this and that, you know, it could be something that's actually beneficial to local governments. You know, I'm, I'm sure everyone wants to have local autonomy and decision-making over their, their jurisdiction. Mm-hmm. But these battles are not easy for them either. Either you know they're, they're very polarizing. They're extremely difficult for local elected officials. Um, and so I imagine at least behind the scenes, <laughs> some of them would prefer not to be having these fights at the local level. But yeah, we'll see. <laughs> yeah, I feel like I have to ask, but just out of curiosity, what about? Um like potential offshore wind and uh, the Great Lakes, or um, is that ever kind of part of the conversation too? Um, if you can't go to land, go to the water. Yeah, no, it, there's definitely been folks who have been interested in that. We had one company um, who is no longer a member, and I'm not sure if that's just because they've moved on to other states, but um, who was interested in doing that. And Obviously, in Lake Erie, there's been a bunch of work um, done on that. I the what was it called? The Great Lakes Offshore or the Michigan Offshore Wind Council or something. There's there was a work done maybe 10, 12 years ago on this, um, and they did a report. And as far as I know, no one's really seriously put forward proposals um, mm-hmm. to do more. You know, uh, but I, I don't, I, you know, <laughs> I think it's been challenging in Lake Erie. Um, I don't know if you guys have any have any companies that you've worked with that want to do it, but um, I know there's there's sort of sporadically interest. I hear from folks who are sort of like, what about if we did that? And <laughs> then it kind of dies out again. Yeah, I've heard about like the, the Lake Erie stuff. And then we had a at our customer forum a few few months ago, that yep. that came up quite quite a lot because I mean a lot of our customers have massive offshore wind farms in the North Sea and now developing um, on the East Coast and in the U.S. And again, with everyone kind of coming coming to Michigan, I know people have been looking at the at the Great Lakes, but um, yeah, there's there's obviously challenges with it, but definitely would be would be cool to cool to see. Yeah, yeah. In 2022, the Institute of Energy Innovation released a roadmap for the state of Michigan's uh, plan for energy storage adoption. I know you've talked, we've talked about that a couple of times so far, but could you share a little bit more about what the state needs to accomplish and achieve those goals um, re- uh, to meet like the, the renewable energy goals for 2030 and, and 2050? Yeah, yeah. So, um this was a, we responded to a um, request for proposals from EGLE, from the Department of Environment, Great Lakes and Energy, to craft a storage roadmap for Michigan and figure out sort of how much storage do we need and then what are the policy proposals that will get us there, to, that will allow us to um, deploy that amount of storage. So we worked with a professor um, Anik, Dr. Anik Anktal from Michigan State University, and then the team at Five Lakes Energy 
um, they they were sort of the modeling experts, and then we were the the policy and the background research experts. Um, and so, the team at Five Lakes they have a model that's very similar to the model that utilities use when they look at long term planning, and they um, ran the model with a number of different scenarios. The looking at essentially what the utilities already plan to do. So it was announced goals. How much storage do we need in, uh, how much storage would the model choose in 2030 and um, on a least cost, best fit uh, methodology. So it's, it's picking the least cost resource to make sure that the grid is stable and that we don't have tons of brownouts and like loss of electricity. Um, with the amount of, of renewables that the utilities are planning. So um, they found as a result of that, that the state will need um, about 2,500 megawatts of storage by 2030 and uh, about 4,000 megawatts by 2040. Um, and that's, you know, again, just based on the utilities plans, this isn't based on getting to carbon neutrality. It's not, you know, based on adding something that we aren't already expecting to happen. Um, and then we also, they also did modeling of which, at which locations will behind the meter storage be most effective. So uh, cost-effective. And they found um, that there are, it's mostly gonna be cost-effective when coupled to solar. So solar plus storage is the most cost-effective option. And, um, you know, highlighted a couple of, key sectors where they think it's especially cost-effective. Um, and the one that, that I sort of hone in on, because I think it's most interesting from a community perspective is K through 12 schools. Because those are potentially great locations for community um, resiliency centers. You know, if the power goes out, you have enough storage at these locations to keep the power running for a few hours, you know, warm folks or charge phones or, you know, get folks, um, some of the facilities, the services that they need when the power's out. Um, and then we also, the professor from MSU looked at the carbon intensity of putting all this storage on the grid. There's sort of a narrative that adding storage can sometimes increase emissions. And that's because folks are just looking at the average production of electricity in the grid and saying, well, storage is charging at time, you know, charging and we're using coal or natural gas to charge the storage. So it's it's not help from, from a climate change, from a carbon perspective. What she did is looked at the exact times when the storage was actually charging based on the other modeling that we did and found out that if you're, you're actually charging it from wind and solar, because that's when you have excess electricity on the grid. So you're actually lowering the carbon emissions. If you don't look at the average grid, you look at the actual times when it's charging and when it's when it's using electricity and discharging it. Um, so anyway, I went down this rabbit hole of the modeling. But from all of that, uh, we then sort of said, okay, what are the policies in, at the legislature, at the Michigan Public Service Mission, at the executive branch, as we do, to get to this much storage? And then proposed um, a series of incentives of sort of rebates of um, legislation, including uh, one that we hope to introduce next year, which is sort of the flagship one coming out of this, which is that 
we need to set a storage target. It's in the climate plan, it's in this report, it's in the report first, then it's in the climate plan, it's part of the IRP modeling process now for the utilities. We need it to be in legislation so that it has you know, that force of law and we can make sure that the utilities are then procuring the amount of storage that we need. Um, to get there. So that's sort of, you know, and then a whole host of regulatory changes. Um, I think we had like a hundred or something ridiculous like that. It's a 300 page report. You don't go read it. <laughs> but if you want to learn about storage, I think it's a, it's a good um, primer and lots of information and lots of good links to other good information. So if anyone listening wants to find it, it is on our website, on the IEI website. Um, and I think it's on, the, it's not easier to find it, it's on the Eagle website, as it's it's an Eagle report. Okay, well, thank you guys. It's great thank to talk you. with you. Thank you. Yeah, it's great fun. talking to you. It's been a fun afternoon. Yeah, yeah. see you later. Anytime. Okay. All right. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of Climate Chronicles, brought to you by SkySpecs. We hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please subscribe to our podcast so you can be the first to know when we release the latest episodes. If you really liked it, make sure to give us a five-star review. See you next time.